Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm David Brent Johnson. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, writers, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is writer and DJ Kyle Long. A native of Indiana, Kyle Long has always been interested in building bridges between his home state and ideas, people, and music from around the world. In 2010, he formed Cultural Cannibals, a partnership with visual artist Arthur Silva. Long is host of Cultural Manifesto, a weekly program that explores the merging of a wide spectrum of global music with more familiar American styles in music such as soul, hip-hop, and jazz. It's broadcast on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio in Indianapolis, where Long lives and performs as a DJ at a variety of cultural events around the city. In addition to his activities as a DJ, Long has also worked as a music curator for institutions including the Indianapolis Museum of Art, the Indianapolis Mayor's Office of International and Cultural Affairs, and the Sidney and Lois Eskenazi Hospital. He was a 2018 Scholar-in-Residence at the IUPUI Arts and Humanities Institute. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us on Profiles. Man, thank you so much for having me, David. As I've told you before, your work in radio has been an influence on me, so it's an honor to be here with you. Appreciate you inviting me. Well, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to hearing about how you got into what you're doing. You, like me, you grew up in Indiana, and I'm curious as to, as a child and adolescent, what kinds of experiences sowed the seeds of your present-day endeavors. What's the Kyle Long blueprint for becoming a DJ and cultural historian? (laughs) Well, sadly, I think there were some negative influences that kind of pushed me into the work that I do today. One of them was just boredom, the boredom of growing up in kind of a bland, generic suburb of Indianapolis. You grew up in Avon, right? I grew up in Avon at a time when it was, today Avon has become this thriving suburb of Indian. There's, you know, strip malls and fast food joints lining the, the roads there. When I grew up there, it was just like a stop on the railroad. There was a Dairy Queen and a little grocery store. And beyond that, there was just nothing to really do or <laughs> experience. <laughs> So I became kind of obsessed with music and the public library and public radio and was just like absorbing like a sponge all the music and books I could get my hands on. Was there a library in Avon or where did you go to There was a small library when I was a kid and it expanded over the years. And, uh, you know, I had a record player at home and they had a small collection of records. They had the Time Life, you know, (laughs) Guide to Jelly Roll Morton box set, things like that. So those were early influences, just... I also grew up rather poor in retrospect. I realized we were in a trailer park. I was raised by a single mom. We didn't have a lot of money. So that experience of kind of growing up poor also left a huge impression on me in terms of the kind of class structure of the United States and the opportunities available for someone who is growing up on kind of the lower end of the economic hierarchy. There aren't a lot of opportunities for kids like that. So, you know, like I said, public library, public radio became huge, huge influences on my life. And I was just soaking these things up as as rapidly as I could. Where did you go to school? Where did you go to high school? I went to Avon school system, but I quit. I kind of quit when I was like 13, going into sixth grade, and I was getting in a lot of trouble with the... (laughs) I was going to say, how did you do that? Because you had to be 16, don't you? Yeah. These days. Yeah, I, I was getting in a lot of trouble with the county government for missing school. But yeah, I officially quit at 16, but I kind of like just stopped going for all intents and purposes at age 13. So what were you doing between ages 13 and 16? Again, absorbing as much music and art and and literature as I could. Yeah, just kind of independent study, I guess. 
that did kind of set you up for what you do now. It actually. did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're kind of like your record own... collector. And, yeah. <laughs> you're kind of attending your own Kyle Long's private school or home school of cultural education. I understand that you got into global music fairly early on, too. And I, I wanted to ask you what attracted you to it and how did you find it growing up in Avon? That's a good question. You know, being a jazz fan, jazz is so imbued with different global music traditions, African, Latin, Asian influences. I was also a fan of psychedelic rock music. The Beatles were a huge influence on me. And of course, the influence of South Asian music on psychedelic rock was huge in the 1960s. So I was already hearing elements of Brazilian music in the jazz I was listening to. I was hearing elements of Indian music in the Beatles and other psychedelic rock bands. So I think that set me up to be interested in those things or to have some ability to make sense of them when, when I was in, first encountering them. And again, it was through the library. I was just checking out anything I could, getting my hands on anything I could. Eventually, I upgraded to a, <laughs> a library card. <laughs> I scammed my way into a library card with the Marion County Libraries in Indianapolis. I think you could check out 70 records at a time. <laughs> and I would check out 70 records. And I got an album, The Many Moods of Tito Puente, which was like a cheap RCA reissue of his uh, early sides with Tico records, these great right. mambo records. And that did it for me, really, in terms of opening up my interest in Latin music and music from places in the world that I hadn't didn't have any connection and with. you were doing all this when the internet wasn't really a exactly. force yet right it wasn't I, even around it wasn't yeah. even around yeah. yet I yeah. mean that's what fascinates me is if you Kyle Long were 13 years old today it would be much much easier I would think you would go online and you could find just about anything maybe but you were doing this back in a time when you really had to to hunt around, I would think, to find this kind of music, whether it's in a library or a record store, and you didn't have the internet even as a guide to tell you about the artists necessarily. Sure. And another turning point for me was the growth of the immigrant community in central Indiana. Again, I had this interest that had been stimulated little by little through different experiences with music. I started venturing out to some of the grocery stores, neighborhood kind of corner stores in Indianapolis. There was a collection of Indian grocery stores along Lafayette Road and 38th Street in Indianapolis uh, starting in the late 90s. And I went into a shop one day and just there's a, an entire wall of cassette tapes, right? Kind of like your office is <laughs> covered in jazz CDs, right? There was just walls and walls of these uh, Bollywood cassettes. And I probably spent the next three years just going through and using whatever little money I could scrounge up. How tapes. were you getting by in this time? Like, how were you getting any money to buy cassettes or whatever? I mean, I was working at a gas station, working uh, stocking groceries on the third shift. That was my main gig for a while. At night, I would do these third shift jobs, and in the daytime, I was an obsessive record collector. Yeah. From what I understand, too, around this period, you also ended up going through some pretty traumatic family losses. How did that affect what you were doing? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because... By the time I was like 21 years old, I'd amassed this strange and enormous record collection, right? Which my mom was so kind to uh, indulge when I was a teenager. You know, we had, I had records in the kitchen cabinets. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was just out of control, but she saw it was something healthy I was involved in and, and just totally indulged it. By the time I was 21, I'd amassed a collection that was pretty impressive and I'd had a base of knowledge that would later become the foundation of my work as a DJ. But I just didn't have, I guess, the confidence, the self-confidence in my own skills or ability or knowledge to make that step. People would always say to me, you're a DJ. you got to get some turntables. you got to get out there and spin some records. This is what you were born to do. 
there was some self-doubt there. I wasn't ready to do it yet. As you alluded to, I did have some uh, uh, very difficult things going on in my family. My sister was hospitalized with some heart problems for a long period of time. During that hospitalization, our mother passed away just because of the stress of the situation. My sister was pretty young. And my sister passed shortly after. That was a very traumatic loss. That was kind of the core of my family. I was very close with my mom and sister both. So I think just the trauma of experiencing that in trying to find a new direction in life afterwards, like feeling like I had a clean slate now. I just dove into uh, music, and I met someone with some turntables almost immediately after that. And right away, things started to happen. Yeah, how did you start to do professional DJ gigs, playing for live audiences and such? How did you get into that? I was kind of tricked into it, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My girlfriend at the time had some turntables, and she had agreed to DJ for the International Student Organization at IUPUI. They had a festival going on. And she asked me to come bring some records and kind of help her out with it because I'd gotten up to speed on her equipment. The day of the event, she's like, well, I'm not involved in this. You just <laughs> you just take it over and go for it. And yeah, immediately I saw a response. You know, I was playing old Nigerian funk records, old Bollywood records that I'd collected, uh, Latin dance records from New York. I really didn't know what I was doing yet. I knew the basics of the equipment. But the response from the those in attendance, it was like something out of a movie. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, this is fun. It was people like lost in their enjoyment of this music. And students who were here studying from different places on the map, afterwards there was just this line of people thanking me and like this took me back home, this took me to a different place and you know, brought some happiness into my life. And I thought, wow, if I can provide that kind of moment of joy for someone, why wouldn't I explore this more deeply? So at that point, I just started taking as many gigs that came my way, and it just immediately took off. That sounds really interesting, too, that you were DJing for an audience of people, many of whom are unmoored from their normal settings, away from home or whatever, and you yourself at this point in your life unmoored as well, and having lost your mother and your sister so recently. I'm curious to ask you, too, what it's like moment to moment to DJ live. How much of it is letting a playlist run and how much of it is improvisation? Do you read the crowd and does that kind of shape the flow of what you're doing? When I started, I would make these very detailed set lists for like minute to minute, organize my records in this structured way so I could kind of set myself up to recreate this playlist. I quickly learned that doesn't work. You have to constantly be changing with the people who are in front of you and how they're reacting to the music. So now I just kind of dive into it, and it's pretty much all improvised. You have certain go-to kind of tracks, or you have certain mixes that you know are going to work, and then you kind of build everything around that and just keep it kind of loose and free. And you're generally spinning vinyl, right? You're generally playing vinyl. Oh, all over the place. I do play vinyl nights, but it was kind of necessary for me to make the jump to digital because of the music I play. They're not pressing like... Uh, Bollywood soundtracks, new ones on vinyl. Although right. you are starting to see that again, right. but 10 years ago they weren't doing that or they weren't pressing like contemporary uh, West African club music on vinyl. Now they are doing it again, but you know, so it was necessary for me about 10 years ago to make that jump to digital. But your mind must have to be such a kind of like immense data bank of music to be able to respond in the moment to what you're seeing going on and thinking like, okay, now it'd be great to segue from this track into that track, but how many tracks do you have at hand to pull from when you're 
doing a DJ gig? Man, in terms of actual numbers of tracks, I don't know, but I have a two terabyte external hard drive that I use, and it's full. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you think about it, too, if someone is specializing in music from across Africa, across Asia, across Latin America, to some extent, I have to have some like American tracks as well. And you're constantly keeping all that up to date as well as maintaining the classic tracks in your data base. That's a lot of music to hold on to. So yeah, it does require kind of a lot of quick thinking and just constantly keeping yourself fresh with the music. If you really want to do a good job and get a good response from an audience, you've got to keep yourself fresh with the music. How has the role of a DJ evolved over the past several decades, and not just in American culture, but in global culture in general? Yeah, that's a great question. And it has the role of the DJ and electronic music has exerted a tremendous influence on global popular music in the last 20 years, but 10 years particularly, and not always in a positive way. I look at what's going on in Indian popular music, and there's been a lot of uh, a lot of the traditional rhythms and instruments that give the music so much power and beauty are being kind of stripped away in favor of Western house music beats and synthesizer arrangements. So, yeah, it hasn't been always a good thing. But I think there's an ebb and flow to all this, you know. After the Beatles, you saw an Indian and global pop music, right. you know, everyone picking up a guitar and trying to kind of recreate right. this thing that had changed the world. But I think things kind of like fall back into place over time. I hope. (laughs) If you're just joining us, my guest on Profiles is Kyle Long, a DJ both in a dance floor and radio capacity, He's a writer and music historian and host of WFYI, Indianapolis's weekly radio program, Cultural Manifesto. Kyle, you've been quoted as saying, I have a history of making inaccessible things very accessible to people. How do you do that? And how, as a cultural presenter, a sort of DJ as teacher, do you kind of blend entertainment and education? In a DJ setting, I would describe what I do as kind of like walking people into maybe a form of music that they're not comfortable with or not familiar with by using things that they can relate to. And again, you talked about, do I have a preset playlist when I go into a gig or do I kind of feel it out? I do feel it out. And if it's a younger crowd, maybe I'll play like, I, I have tons of remixes of, <laughs> of uh, American and Western popular songs done in every sort of style imaginable. So I might play like a Kendrick Lamar cumbia remix if it's a Latin night and I'm trying to like engage an American audience. I have a whole playlist of Beatles covers. If it's an older audience, I might play like an hour set of Jamaican and African Beatles covers. <laughs> and so through kind of like blending in things people are familiar with, you know, before you know it, they're kind of opened up to the unfamiliar and they've been kind of introduced to some of these textures in that DJ setting. That's strictly related to my work as a DJ. Through writing for Nouveau for many years and now through doing this radio show at WFYI, Cultural Manifesto, that gives me a chance to kind of dive deeper into this music and really open it up for people in a way that that I can't do in a club as a DJ. Right, yeah, having listened to some of your cultural manifesto programs, yeah, you really can explore in more detail something that I would think when you're when you're DJing at a dance floor, you're not going to stop and for 5 minutes give them some no. spoken historical context. <laughs> no, that <laughs> But you go can over. do that on cultural manifesto. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you program in a really wide variety of settings. You just talked about some of those settings. You've done work for Indianapolis's Art Museum for its city government, for the Sydney and Lois Eskenazi Hospital. So 
it does sound like you have to often kind of shape how and what you're presenting to people in different ways because you have so many different audiences. Sure. With the Indianapolis Museum of Art, which is now known as New Fields, for better or worse, that was a particular challenge because they wanted the music to interact with the exhibits that were happening at that time. So I remember uh, there was a lot of thought put into what kind of music we would present for the Ai Weiwei show, you know, the famous Chinese dissident artist. Right, yeah. They were like, we don't want Chinese music. You know, that's just, you know, his music <laughs> is kind of rebelling against right, a lot of right, right. traditional yeah, yeah, Chinese yeah, culture yeah, exactly. in some ways. They wanted something that kind of matched the rebelliousness of Ai Weiwei. So that's a challenging kind of thing to curate. I ended up contacting this uh, Pakistani, Punjabi, Muslim punk rock band called the Kominas. <laughs> and their music was kind of pushing buttons on both sides of the fence. You know, they were kind of like pushing the boundaries of Islamic culture. They were kind of testing out the boundaries of American punk rock culture in terms of presenting music in Punjabi with themes relating to Islam. They were challenging American audiences. So, yeah, we asked the Kaminas if they wanted to come and play, and they jumped on board and were big fans of Ai Weiwei. So, yeah, in different settings, there are different challenges. I also, as you mentioned, uh, curate music for Eskenazi Hospital, which is the public hospital in Indianapolis. And, of course, you know, volume and <laughs> the appropriateness of the music is a big factor in that environment. So, yeah, right. being well-versed in a lot of different forms of music has helped me kind of navigate in these worlds, yeah. And you also did some work for the Indianapolis city government, uh, right? Yeah. What was that that you did for them? Indianapolis has a sister cities program where they have sister cities in, uh, across the globe in Brazil, China, India, different partner cities. And there was a festival every year kind of honoring these relationships. So I would curate the festival lineup and DJ between bands. So again, it was like trying to like make those. We had Delhi to Dublin play one year, which is a band that mixes. <laughs> They've been here at Lotus. They mix Irish folk music with... Punjabi, Bhangra music. That's so, not your everyday hybrid, is it? <laughs> no, but it was perfect for this relationship. Not something you're going to hear down at the bar on Friday night very often. Not often, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. You talked a little bit about going to the record stores along Lafayette Road in Indianapolis, and I wanted to ask you, because you are so very active in Indianapolis's immigrant music communities, and how did those interests and connections develop for you? Mm. You know, we were talking a little bit about what motivated me to be a DJ, and I think this kind of overlaps as I did work all these jobs back in the day of gas station, grocery store, I would kind of be like an outsider figure within that cultural environment in these places. And alongside me would be people of different immigrant backgrounds. And we all kind of bonded together in these situations. And I would notice if I were stocking shelves and I have a friend from Pakistan stocking shelves with me. And, and one day I would turn to them and say, do you know this singer Abda Parveen, this Kuali singer? And the way someone's whole demeanor and just attitude would change immediately when you said a name of something that brought them meaning and joy in their life, in this environment where they were kind of stripped of those things to some extent. I would have those encounters over and over again with people that I was working with and meeting at that point in my life. And I saw how powerful it could be just to mention a name of a musician, how someone would just light up and we would just bond in that moment. And it would bring some joy and comfort in this situation where they maybe felt like an outsider or felt alienated. So those experiences, simple as they are, were really the foundation of me getting involved as an activist 
and as somewhat of a musical personality or journalist or DJ in the immigrant music scene in Indianapolis. It was just these very, very simple kind of encounters. And people just pulled me into this world, which I wanted to be in. Right. But, you know, that just seeing the genuine interest and enthusiasm and passion for this music, people would just pull me in from that point, just these simple encounters. And just saying the artist's name sometimes was like a cultural token or emblem that enabled you to form that connection. Imagine if you're in an environment where some people are hostile to your cultural identity. To have someone not only embrace that, but have some, even if it's just some, like you said, token knowledge of it or an emblem of it, that can be extraordinary for someone who's feeling isolated. And those moments really fueled my work and still do. It was only through the kindness and support of the immigrant community in Indianapolis that I was able to make any headway in what I do as a DJ or as a journalist. You know, it's through their cooperation in these stories and interviews that I do, which don't necessarily benefit them. It's only through their kindness and tolerance of me as an outsider kind of hovering around their culture that I've been able to uh, make any headway in this. So I'm extremely, incredibly grateful for the kindness of the immigrant community of Indianapolis. As a white person navigating a, a really wide variety of cultural streams, do you ever encounter any wariness? You know, you're going into communities that you have become a part of in one way or another, but you often go in with quite a lot of knowledge of community when a lot of people in these communities, I'm sure, are used to dealing with people who have absolutely no knowledge whatsoever. But do you ever worry about being seen as a sort of white cultural colonialist, mm-hmm. albeit a very sympathetic and, and sure. likable one? Yeah, of course. That's a constant concern of mine, you know, cultural appropriation is a huge, over the last few years, it's been a huge topic of conversation. So it's something I've always tried to be mindful of. Whenever I have been questioned in that way, it's usually from fellow white Americans or just fellow Americans, let's say. People in the immigrant communities that I've worked with and forged relationships with seldom view things that way. There's just a great encouragement that I've experienced. You know, I've just experienced such incredible acts of kindness from people that it's really humbling. But yeah, that resistance, the critique, I haven't had much of it, but the little that I have experienced has come from more like Anglo-Americans, let's say. That's really interesting. Well, have you ever had people kind of suspicious of why you're so interested in in them? I think so. I think there's some initial kind of apprehension, but I think it's once someone sees your knowledge, your interest, and your real passion for it, I think it becomes evident what it's all about, you know, and where I'm coming from. That you're not some kind of undercover agent or something. Right, right. (laughs) I also try to be mindful of how I profit from these things. I do a lot of free events. Like I had a very popular party in Indianapolis, Bollywood Bhangra, where I would play South Asian popular music. And at a certain point, I started doing them for free because I didn't feel like I should necessarily profit off my connection with this music. I got into it purely out of the love for it and sharing it with others. So yeah, I'm very mindful of that and try to always question myself on my motivations, try to keep it in that pure place that it was when I started. Because it is easy, I think, to lose sight of that. And, you know, Diplo, the electronic music producer, I think he deals with that label of cultural appropriation often. He's making a fortune off kind of absorbing global popular music styles. And he does have a privilege over people from these countries where he's kind of harvesting this music. He does have a platform and a privilege over them that allows him to kind of exploit that commercially. Although I'm a fan of his and would also defend him, I can critique him as well. So I 
try to be mindful of that in my own work because I'm not making a lot of money off this. <laughs> and it's coming from such yeah. a pure place of the love of the music and the love of the people and the way the music can be a bridge between cultures, especially at a time like we're experiencing the, over the past few years in the United States where there is so much tension and hate, sadly, even. That's something I definitely want to ask you about. I wanted to ask you also about a partnership that you formed in 2010 with visual artist Arthur Silva called Cultural Cannibals. Mm-hmm. What's the mission of that partnership and how do you carry it out? Yeah, so meeting Artur was really life-changing for me. I was DJing at the time, but didn't have a clue what I was doing like in terms of promoting myself or having any sort of kind of professional <laughs> image for what I was doing. And Artur... He's a native of Brazil. He moved to the United States in the 90s and uh, has been living in Indianapolis for about 20 years. When I met Artur, he was at a really high place in his career as a visual artist in Indianapolis. And he didn't need to take time to school me, but he did take that time. And really, I got such a huge education from him. So I'm so grateful to him for sharing his knowledge with me and helping me establish myself in the Indianapolis arts community. So Cultural Cannibals is based on the Tropicalia movement, which happened in Brazil, which was this merger of psychedelic music with traditional Brazilian rhythms. It was kind of an intellectual movement that happened in response to the Brazil's military dictatorship. And Tropicalia was inspired by this, uh, it was called the Cannibalist Manifesto, this piece of poetry that had been written probably 40 years prior to the Tropicalia movement. So Artur and I were very influenced by Tropicalia, and we looked to this movement and to this Cannibalist Manifesto, which talked about kind of the best part of Brazil being its ability to kind of cannibalize or assimilate different cultural influences into kind of a, a whole identity, right? So we looked at Indianapolis and saw the immigrant communities of the city as one of our strengths and wondered how we as artists could try to kind of assemble these things into some sort of whole and bring people together. So that was the point of it. My DJ work started to go under the umbrella of Cultural Cannibals, and we collaborated on other projects as well. You mentioned just a a little bit ago about the current climate of things in the country, and I wanted to ask you about that because immigration has always been a key component of the American narrative And it's often been a contentious one. I mean, certainly Indiana has its own very troubled history in that regard with the prominence of the Ku Klux Klan in the early 20th century, which was not only directed against African-Americans, but against immigrants of all kinds. And in recent years, it's again become a political flashpoint. And I wanted to ask, in what ways does that affect the cultural work that you do? Man, that's a great question. I've actually paused a little bit in the last couple of years to kind of just try to understand what's happening and how my work can hopefully interrupt some of these negative influences that we're seeing coming from uh, the federal government and the executive branch. So, yeah, I don't know. It's made me more thoughtful about my work and how I can really be a force for some sort of positivity and hopefully change. So I don't have an easy answer for that because it's something I'm still kind of struggling to understand myself. But you're trying to build bridges instead of walls, Exactly. That's always been the nature of what I do, and you could say it's more important now than ever. If you're just tuning into Profiles, I'm talking with Kyle Long, who writes Cultural Manifesto, a weekly column for Indianapolis's alternative news weekly Nouveau. 
and who host a weekly program of the same name on WFYI Indianapolis Public Radio. Kyle, we were talking just a little bit ago about Cultural Cannibals, your partnership with Arthur Silva, and you were talking about how it was formed in part because of uh, certain things you saw or didn't see on the Indianapolis cultural scene. I wanted to ask, how does the general perception of Indianapolis, well, and Indiana's cultural history and current cultural scene differ from your vision of it, the way you perceive it? Do you think there's a disparity there? I mean, do you think you're trying to address maybe a disparity in the work that you're doing? I definitely think so. And I think that touches on some of the work I've done writing about jazz in Indianapolis as well. I think Indianapolis is perceived as a very boring place, a place where nothing of any artistic value has really occurred. And I don't think that's true today, and I don't think that's true historically. My own personal discovery of this history of jazz and Indiana Avenue shifted my own image of of where I lived in radical ways. So I'm hoping through my work to kind of provide that for other people by this sort of in-depth, ongoing investigation, journalism about the scene on Indiana Avenue, the music that it produced, and also the current immigrant music scene in Indianapolis, which is located around Lafayette Road and 38th Street, as we mentioned. So yeah, I think there is a great disparity between the way the city's looked at from an outside lens and the way I look at it. But I think I'm on the, <laughs> I think my, I think my view is the right one. And again, I, my work is kind of like designed to convince other people of that. I grew up in Indianapolis and I grew up with the perception of the city as being a very white Anglo-Saxon Protestant based city. Didn't really learn at all about Indiana Avenue till I came to school at Indiana University and started getting into jazz and then found out, oh, wait a minute. David Baker is teaching at Indiana University, learned about J.J. Johnson, Wes Montgomery, and all these other people. But when I was growing up, there was very little recognition of that as a part of Indianapolis's cultural history. And certainly you have done an immense amount of work documenting not only present day, but historical aspects of not only Indianapolis's jazz music scene, but its soul music scene, its global music scene, its rap scene. And I wanted to ask, who are some of your favorite overlooked Indianapolis and Indiana musicians that you've championed or whose music you've brought to light in recent years through your work? Yeah, man, we could fill the rest of the show (laughs) talking about this. Uh, Someone who I recently have been doing a lot of work kind of documenting his career that I think is incredibly important but has never received recognition for his work in any meaningful way is Reggie Griffin. His brother Rayford Griffin actually is a pretty well-known jazz drummer. He plays with Jean-Luc Ponty. And their uncle was Clifford Brown. So they have this kind of wow. great jazz yeah. kind of foundation in their family. So Reggie Griffin kind of shot to fame as a member of Manchild. It was a funk band in Indianapolis during the 1970s, mostly remembered because this is the group where Babyface kind of launched his career as a songwriter. So Reggie Griffin, after the breakup of Manchild, he'd started playing synths with Manchild. And after the breakup of Manchild, he had an opportunity to go out to New York or in New Jersey, technically, to Sugar Hill Records and start kind of doing sound design on some of the early hip-hop records that were happening there, adding synth textures and things to those records. So when you look back at a lot of the iconic records that came out of Sugar Hill, like uh, Scorpio by Grandmaster Flash or The Message by Grandmaster Flash, even Apache, I think, was the first record he worked on by Sugar Hill Gang. Reggie Griffin kind of designed the synth textures in those records, which in the case of The Message, the synth line in the record is you know, an iconic melody in in, uh, American music. 
he also released what was the first American release to use the term techno in his music. This guy was on the ground floor of electro, hip-hop, and in some ways, techno music itself in a very tangential kind of way. I think Reggie Griffin is an enormously influential figure that has never gotten the slightest recognition for his work because he's a very soft-spoken guy. So as far as musicians that I've been championing their work, he would rate very high at the list just because there's such a disparity between his accomplishments and uh, the recognition he gets. He almost exists in anonymity in a lot of ways because he is so quiet. How did you get hip to him? You know, reading liner notes is <laughs> kind of the secret. People always ask me how I figure all this stuff out. Well, reading liner notes is a pretty easy way to draw a lot of connections, you know. But I'd met Reggie. People and, now uh, don't even know what liner notes are sometimes because yeah, right? they're not, yeah. They're they don't come liner... with the download right, on Amazon. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, and then I had the opportunity to interview Reggie and go in depth into his life and experiences, and that added even a fuller picture of what he'd been involved with. But, yeah, liner notes are a, a good way. Merging Traffic is another band that I would mention as well, a popular fusion group in Indianapolis in the 1970s. They really dominated the jazz fusion scene in Indy. They recorded hours and hours of music, but for many different reasons, none of it was ever released. So their legacy is kind of tarnished over time as people in my generation and your generation and subsequent generations don't have any sort of knowledge or, or reference point. Reference point. Them, yeah. Yeah. Audio reference point. So I was recently able to convince uh, Kenny Sims and George Ben. Convince is the wrong word. I was lucky to earn their trust. <laughs> I was fortunate to earn their trust. And I, I was able to share an hour of this phenomenal, mesmerizing fusion music that came out of Indianapolis that's just been kind of in a vault for 40-plus years. You mentioned uh, Reggie Griffin. Mm -hmm. That You said one reason he didn't become better known was that he's very soft-spoken. You talked about merging traffic, having a variety of reasons for having not released any of the music they recorded. What are some of the other factors that end up marginalizing certain bodies of music? Why does some music get heard and other music not so much? Yeah, that's a question I pose to a lot of the soul, funk, and jazz musicians I interview. You know, there were so many talented people in Indianapolis. Why wasn't there a Motown here? Why wasn't there some sort of mechanism to propel them to a, another level. And I, that's the answer to the question itself. For whatever reason, there just wasn't this kind of mechanism here, a label or a, a financial sponsor. Although there were many great independent labels that documented the music here. There just, no one had that kind of, maybe the financial support or the, the vision to really export this out in a meaningful and sustaining way over a period of years. And I think that's been the biggest... Uh, detriment to the Indianapolis music scene over the entire course of uh, the 20th century was the lack of a, a sort of a record industry or any kind of way to get this music out to a, a wider audience. That's what I remember talking to David Baker, the great Indianapolis jazz musician and jazz educator about that once, and he felt that part of the reason that Indianapolis jazz, which thrived in the wider world, didn't, didn't have more of a base in Indianapolis was there were really no major recording labels. You pretty much had to go to New York City uh, to record or to the West Coast, uh, like people like Leroy Vinegar, the bassist did, and other people, uh, uh, you know, or, or drive up to Chicago to, to make recordings. That sort of helped keep the Indianapolis scene sort of under the radar to some extent or explains why certain artists like maybe like a saxophonist like David Young, who's a tremendous saxophonist, only put out one album under his own name in his whole lifetime. We continue to play till the end of his life in Indianapolis. You could go hear him, but you couldn't really hear him on on records. <laughs> yeah. You definitely had to leave the city to get that recognition. And, it, and people could find 
studios to record here, little indie studios, but they, then they had nothing to do with this music. And you, in groups like Merging Traffic, you see it over and over again where prominent Indianapolis jazz artists that never left the city did create some recordings, but they just never went anywhere. They didn't either release them or they were so independent that it just didn't go anywhere until years later. Billy Wooten is a good example of that, the vibraphone player. He was kind of visionary in that way of independently recording and releasing his own music in Indianapolis. He had a group called Wood and Glass that recorded a live album that is now an incredibly expensive collector's item and has been reissued and pirated many times. But yeah, he, he did have that kind of vision to press a record of his music, but there was just no kind of mechanism here to distribute that to a wider audience. Do you ever come across uh, little-known or little-heard music, say, from Indianapolis or Indiana or whatever, and think there's a reason for its obscurity? It just wasn't that good. <laughs> of course, yeah. Of course. I've got a crate full of those records. Um, yeah, I think that's true of any music scene. But yeah, overall, I think the quality here was really high in terms of jazz and soul music. I have a lot of really horrible rock and folk records from Indianapolis. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite musicians, yeah. and, and this... Uh, is part of the residency. You mentioned this uh, scholar-in-residence program at IUPUI's Arts and Humanities Institute that I'm part of. One of the things I'm doing there is trying to build an archive of information and recordings of Errol Groundhog Grandy, who's one of the most important Indianapolis uh, jazz musicians. He was known as the Dean of Indiana Avenue. Uh, he was a pianist, partially blind, which hence the name Groundhog. He influenced a lot of players, taught a lot of players informally, like Wes Montgomery, who didn't have a formal music education. Groundhog would teach him some sort of concepts and things that Wes would then apply to his music. Uh, Groundhog holds a really special place in the history of Indianapolis music. But again, there's no commercial recordings of his music. Not one note was ever released of his playing. And I became obsessed with wanting to to hear this influential and, uh, and really famous pianist from Indianapolis. So there are people sitting on these recordings. There's studio recordings that weren't released. One of the most fantastic bits of information I've heard is that uh, Groundhog backed the poet Mari Evans on a recording in the 19, like around the early 50s when she was trying to become a Billie Holiday type of vocalist. And oh there's gosh, supposedly yeah, a recording. Mari Evans is a nation, yeah. was a nationally renowned poet. Yeah, in from Indianapolis, yeah. yeah. And there's supposedly a recording of her singing in the early 50s with Groundhog on key. So I've heard all these like tantalizing rumors of Groundhog recordings and I've heard a couple myself. So yeah, I'm trying to, through this uh, uh, residency at IUPUI's Arts and Humanities Institute, create sort of an archive of information, photos, oral histories, anything I can get my hands on, documenting any aspect of uh, Errol Grandy's life. So you're kind of like a cultural detective. <laughs> I've become one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, you reach a, I think you reach a point with, when you're a record collector or a music fan, you reach a point where you kind of exhaust what's out there, you know, what's known. And you either kind of just are satisfied with that or you step over that barrier and move into that detective work, which you have too. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Do you have a rough idea of how many LPs and CDs and cassettes you own altogether? I mean, no. You <laughs> asked me, again, I can only, when you ask me about my digital collection, I, I can only define it in terms of like space. So I live in a pretty big house with multiple bedrooms, garage, attic, basement. And it's just, I look like a hoarder. It's really embarrassing. Every room <laughs> is just filled with boxes of records. So, I was going to ask how you find a place for all of it. So a yeah. large house is this. this a thing. large house, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's neat that you do that in an age that is so digitally driven, you know, that some, some people are quite happy to 
have all the access to all the music they want to have access to on on their cell phone. Yeah. But you still you have all these physical artifacts of it. And I think part of it too, I find this myself being somebody who's really into music is you can't find everything on Spotify, and particularly a lot of the things that maybe I or especially you are interested in are not going to probably ever be on Spotify yeah. after a or a, some other digital yeah. streaming service. After a broadcast of a show, people will frequently ask me, "Where can I've looked that artist up on Spotify? I looked it up on YouTube, and I can't find." it like yeah there's a lot of music out there that's not that was commercially released that was distributed by in some like uh, national way but just has never kind of bubbled up onto the digital world yeah. what's your favorite way of listening to music what's your favorite format or do you have one oh i mean i love records of course you know i love like to put on a, a 33 and have that whole listening experience flipping it over yeah i also like 45s for like the quick shot of adrenaline that you get off of a really good 45 so yeah well and 45s it seems like two like lesser known music scenes a lot of people were able to put out a 45 putting out a 45 wasn't quite as an economic challenge maybe as putting out a whole album. Sure, when you think about the studio time required to make an LP and, yeah, designing a cover and all the different factors that go into it, yeah, it would be substantially, exponentially more expensive to produce an LP. So what are your favorite places to, not necessarily specific places, but what kinds of places do you still go to these days in your hunts and your efforts to accumulate ever more music for your mission? You know, Traditional record stores have never been my favorite places, I would say. I love going to, like, junk shops where, you know, you have to <laughs> you have to climb through a room full of mannequins and wigs <laughs> <laughs> to, like, get to, like, a little box of records. And that's where you usually find the stuff that's really unique and worth your time. Our guest on Profiles is Kyle Long. He's an Indianapolis-based DJ and cultural historian. Kyle, we mentioned a little bit earlier that you work as a music curator for the Sydney and Lois Eskenazi Hospital. And I wondered if you tell us a little bit more about the nature of your work there, what they ask you to do and what the purpose of it is. Sure. It's the public hospital in Indianapolis, and it was created about five years ago with the idea that music and art should be a meaningful part of the healing process. Also good nutrition and access to good nutritional foods as well. So the hospital was designed and is operated with those ideas in mind. So we have a a rooftop garden where vegetables are grown that are sold in the cafeteria at the hospital. We have beautiful visual art, award-winning collection of contemporary uh, visual art. And we have this music program, which happens uh, multiple times a week in the normal business day of the hospital. It's not a music therapy program, but it is designed to have therapeutic value to uh, the patients and staff and visitors of the hospital. So yeah, I curate sometimes three to five performances a week at the hospital. The music ranges from jazz to Baroque music to we've had hip hop artists there collaborating with you know jazz musicians. So it's, it's all over the place. Last year, we established a, a performer in residence series. And every year that will be a different artist. And uh, in 2018, it was Bloomington's Salam with Dina El Safar and Tim Moore who came and did several performances throughout 2018. So 
We also have a partnership with Lotus here in Bloomington and have been able to present some magnificent, incredible music in the hospital environment. Dance of Hope, a Ugandan uh, dance and percussion group, which was really loud and really, <laughs> really lively. We have these concerts kind of in the main lobby of the hospital near a patient uh, waiting area for the radiology department, to be precise. So this music is up in your face, whether you want it to be or not. And the response that I see from that it is extraordinary. You know, you see, you literally see someone jump out of a wheelchair and start dancing. You know, you see people reanimated with life that a few minutes before had been kind of like glazed look in their eye and disinterested. So this has been a profound experience for me, seeing in this up close and personal way how music can affect someone and affect their whole being and, and their whole sense of the world in, in ways that are really profound. You said it's the public hospital in Indianapolis. Do you see people coming through from the communities that you're often out in, DJing in and everything, people from Indianapolis's immigrant communities? Or? Sure. We have people. That's what's really amazing about this to me. We have people coming to the hospital to hear a concert, you know? We have people who aren't there to receive treatment. They're there to hear some music that has struck their uh, interest. So yeah, we see people coming in for the concerts. Have a lot of great historic jazz players and soul players there as well. Famous Indiana soul singer from the 60s and 70s, Lonnie Lester, almost, I was afraid he was gonna get me fired. He, <laughs> he used to have a pretty wild nightclub act. And he told me he didn't uh, do that act anymore and was doing standards. So I said, oh, perfect, come, come perform at the hospital. Uh, this guy's in his 80s, right? He's jumping on the furniture, taking his jacket <laughs> off, swinging it above his head, <laughs> grinding on people. <laughs> I was like, this is the day I lose my job. But, uh, you know, that's what's incredible. The leadership at Eskenazi, Dr. Lisa Harris, who's the CEO of the hospital, that's, she wants to see this music bring people's spirits up and engage them in ways that kind of fill them with uh, life. So, yeah, it's, it's an amazing place to, to work, and I'm extremely grateful you know, I mentioned the influence of the public library and public radio on my work. It's no accident that I kind of landed at this job. I believe that these resources, music, art, culture, should be made widely available to people regardless of their economic position. And, you know, I'm really grateful to be a part of a program that believes in, in the accessibility of arts in every level. It's sort of antithetical to the more stereotypical hipster obscurantist thing of like, this is secret music and we're going to keep it secret. You want to you want to disseminate this music as widely as possible. Exactly. It, like. it goes back to that quote you you pulled out earlier about accessibility. I've always been about you know, if, if this brings me joy, I mean, I'm a huge fan of free jazz and noise music. And I don't think that's this thing that should be kept in obscurity that only a small marginal group of people could, could enjoy. I think that there's something in this music. If I enjoy it, there's something in it that could bring some sort of meaning to someone else. And we've had experimental, avant-garde, new music at Eskenazi and people who you would not traditionally think would identify with that music or find value in it are just completely enthralled by it. So... Like I said, I don't think I'm so weird and, and different that if something it brings me joy or I can find meaning in it, then someone else won't. And all my work has been kind of about opening up that accessibility. And hopefully through my, you know, sometimes I'm sure in radio you get into this too. You're like, God, I'm going into this really obscure area and people are going to be turning off their radios like <laughs> in large numbers. But I, I hope that my excitement, enthusiasm is contagious in some way and they can kind of get a peek into maybe why one person finds a fascination with this and that might open up sort of window for them to, to understand it. How does your experience these days working, doing what you do at Eskenazi, how does that contrast with your experience 
when your mother and your sister were ill and spending a lot mm-hmm. of time in the hospital and you were spending a lot of time there with them as well. Did that have any kind of impact on how you yourself now approach what you do at the hospital? It did. I literally was like living in the hospital with my sister on like a cot next to her her bed for, for weeks at a time. So yeah, I did get a really unique kind of perspective on the hospital environment. Being there as a, a pretty much a healthy person and kind of getting to experience the whole hospital dynamic. And yeah, my sister was uh, in what is considered a really fine hospital in Indianapolis, but the environment there was very... Oh, man, it was very dreary, very depressing. And oddly, there was a player piano in the main lobby that would just, you'd be walking through the lobby and it played some like barrel house ragtime music just randomly. Wow, I'm just not in the mood for this right now. (laughs) And, you know, you couldn't shut the thing off or, or, or request another song. So, yeah, that environment definitely made me think a lot about the env- how Providing the environment, something different. Yeah, how the environment of a hospital can impact the, the mental and overall health of a, a visitor and a patient. You mentioned earlier, we talked a little bit about your being a visiting scholar at IUPUI's Arts and Humanities Institute, uh, where you've been doing some work on a book about Indianapolis sign painter Jasper Travis, who's also known as the Brushmaster. Can you tell us a little bit about that yeah. project? And that book actually came out in 2018 through Half Letter Press in Chicago. So During the 1990s, I started noticing all these uh, hand-painted signs throughout Indianapolis that bared some sort of stylistic resemblance. One of my favorites was actually a record store on Keystone Avenue called Frog's Records. And there was this really (laughs) ridiculous sign, hand-painted sign. It covered the entire kind of storefront, advertising all the different products for sale, which included hot wrap, (laughs) nachos, and pantyhose. (laughs) And I would just like get such a kick out of this sign and became fixated on it. And again, I started noticing other very eccentric, colorful signs that were far more ornate, intricate, and colorful than they needed to be. It was like the guy was hired to paint fresh fish, $2.99 on the side of the wall, but he just went nuts and painted the whole building and painted landscapes and people fishing. And I was like, who is this guy? And I saw the name Brushmaster tagged on one of the signs and just became obsessed with finding finding the Brushmaster. I wasn't able to for almost gosh, almost 15, 20 years. In the 90s, bought a disposable camera and just started documenting all these different uh, storefronts and signs that he painted. A couple years ago, I found this huge chunk of photos. I'd been collecting them on my iPhone as well recently, but I found this original chunk of photos that I'd taken. And I realized that most of these businesses had disappeared, had been torn down, many due to gentrification of uh, the inner city in uh, Indianapolis. And I realized I'd something that was just this weird kind of obsession I had. Through that weird obsession, I documented something that was gone and that maybe other people would find meaningful as well. So I started posting these photos on Instagram, and the public interest that came back to me was just overwhelming. Eventually, through my kind of research and posting these photos on social media, I was able to meet the Brushmaster, and the opportunity came to put a book together, and then the Arts and Humanities Institute at IUPUI was interested in kind of helping me navigate that and sponsoring it. So you're doing this work as a research scholar, you're working as a music curator, writing a newspaper column for Nuvo, you're a a DJ in various capacities. Do you ever have any time to unwind, or is doing this work kind of how you unwind? Yeah, doing the work is how I unwind. You know, I love going to concerts. I guess that would be my, like, source of uh, entertainment. But I'm always, if I'm at the concert, I'm fixated on talking to the musician afterwards. Right, right, right. So it just never ends, yeah. It's a rare position to be in 
where the thing you love more than anything else in life is what somebody was foolish enough to pay you to do. I'm not going to take that for granted, and I'm just trying to enjoy it and be in the moment with it as much as possible. Are you at a point where do you still have to hold down any kind of day job that's non-musical or cultural related in order to help pay bills? Through all these different activities, you know, Eskenazi, the radio, writing. Writing has become a huge source of income for me. And DJ gigs. No, I mean, that's my life. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, these days you are, you're operating on this very highly respected cultural plane. You're hosting a weekly public radio program. You're writing a column for a longstanding alternative news weekly. You're DJing with globally renowned artists. You're working as a music curator for art museums and municipal institutions. You were the visiting scholar at IUPUI. Do you ever have or still have moments when you think, wow, I, I can't believe I'm here? Is Is there like a kid from Avon still inside you that's thinking like, this is incredible. How did how did this all come to pass? Absolutely. You know, I mentioned to you I quit school at an early age. I don't right. Th- there aren't too many 13-year-old <laughs> dropouts who I imagine are visiting scholars at IUPUI. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, people think I quit school because I was, like, too advanced for the curriculum. That wasn't the case at all. I was lost. I mean, I, I didn't have a clue how to navigate that world, and I was just lost. And I it was just more comfortable for me to disengage from that and and kind of go in my own path, even though that created its own complexities. I told you I was constantly in trouble with the the authorities for playing hooky. So, you know, I don't think I even wrote a book report during the time I was in school. So when I was offered the opportunity to write for a newspaper and then to write a weekly column for a newspaper, it was very intimidating, but also, yeah, it was validating in a way that I, I wasn't just a, a loser, a high school dropout, because trying to exist in this society as a high school dropout is very tough, you know. You're not looked at as some sort of a cool outsider. You're just looked at as like a loser who couldn't hack it. And the opportunities I had as a high school dropout were were pretty depressing. So, yeah, I mean, it's the fact that I get paid to write is shocking to me. It really is. Every time I get a check for a writing assignment I've done, it's just kind of humbling. So, yeah. Well, you were playing hooky, though, by going to the public library. Yeah. I mean, I was. It's <laughs> <laughs> not your standard form of playing hooky. And, you know, I'm so grateful to my mom for, you know, she was busy. She was a single mom trying to raise, raise a family. And, you know, she just didn't have time to, like, be with us during the daytime. But she did give me that trust and to, to have that freedom to make choices that other people would have thought were life destroying my life, but ended up being the thing that have given me a life, you know, so I I really am just incredibly grateful for her patience and her vision to understand that I needed to just do something completely different for a few years of my life before I could make sense of it all and, and, and be productive and figure something out. Well, and it sounds like your origins did really help pave the way for what you're doing, too. The fact that you did grow up poor, that you grew up, that, that even though you're white, maybe it gave you a more innate ability to appreciate the struggles that people of color and immigrant citizens of Indianapolis go through just in their day-to-day life. I think you're exactly exactly right. And I don't want to overemphasize my ability to kind of empathize with, with people who have faced discrimination based on ethnicity, nationality, or religion. But it did give me a window into understanding that. You know, I saw a lot of things growing up, you know, when you're poor. I saw a lot of things I shouldn't have and lived through a lot of things that I didn't want to, you know, like utilities getting shut off and in the dead of winter, you know, it it was rough. You know, I'm not trying to romanticize that existence in any way. It was very, very rough. 
But it did give me a window into the kind of things that people are dealing with and what it's like to live with pain or what it's like to live with being an outsider from the environment where you live. Yeah, it was interesting when you said that, you know, how you made some of your connections early on with people working at gas stations, working at convenience grocery stores. And you, in that setting, being a bit of an outsider yourself, mm-hmm. because so many of the people that you were working with were immigrants or people of color or people living in a lower economic strata than a lot of other folks in Indianapolis. And yet, in that setting, you yourself were a little bit of a somebody who didn't necessarily fit in, but yet you did fit in, partly because of your background of experiences. Well, what do you ultimately hope for your work in all of its capacities to, to accomplish? Yeah. I God, that's a tough question. Yeah. I'm always hoping that it makes people a little more empathetic, a little less judgmental, a little more open to new ideas, new sounds, new music, new people. That's the ultimate hope is that you are opening up some sort of an opportunity for people to experience, understand something new, and maybe it changes them in some way. I mean, that's always been the hope that maybe if I write an article about the positive contributions of the immigrant community in Indianapolis through the arts and through uh, being entrepreneurs. Maybe that changes someone, the narrative someone's getting on Fox News, right? So it's always creating counter narratives that are based in truth, you know, and based in really trying to understand something in a deeper way, not just making, you know, rash judgments on something based on little evidence. So political dialogue hasn't really gotten us anywhere. Just brings us further apart. So I always saw the arts as the way that maybe you kind of get under someone's skin. I mean, I could have easily been your stereotypical Trump supporter with my background. You know, most of my family embraced those kinds of ideas, these very conservative, isolationist political ideas. I could have easily, easily been that person. And not to say that those are bad people by any means. But through the arts, I gained this window to the world that was not available to me in other places and radically transformed my life in positive ways. I want to give that back to other people, an ability to see the world in a way that they're not being offered elsewhere. Come a long way from Avon, haven't you? <laughs> but a few miles physically, but yeah, yeah. Kyle Long, thank you so much for joining us on Profiles. It was an honor to be here with you, David. Thank you. I've been speaking with Kyle Long, an Indianapolis-based DJ, writer, historian, and host of WFYI's Cultural Manifesto. I'm David Brent Johnson. Thanks for joining us. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.